Yo, what's happening, everybody? This is Austin coming at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Today on the podcast, we are going to be going over some tachyarrhythmias and how to treat them. I think that there's a lot of confusion out there, um, or I guess a lot of apprehension out there about the use of things like adenosine and um, and certain other antiarrhythmic medications, whatever the class may be. Um, and hopefully this will help to really identify exactly what our goals are in patients, um, as well as... I guess put your mind at ease about the, you know, the AHA adage of, you know, adenosine is going to kill your AFib patients because A, that's just simply not true. And B, I think that the American Heart Association in general, and this, this may get me in trouble by saying this, but the AHA in general has to cater to the lowest common denominator of human being that could potentially go into their classes. And, uh, um, unfortunately, um, when you do that, you end up trying to simplify the information a little bit too much um, for the general audience that you have in front of you. So today what we're going to start out with is we're going to talk about the, the action potential curve in the heart and how it relates to the EKGs that you are actually looking at. So you can kind of conceptualize exactly what's happening during that QRS complex, during the T wave, and um, it'll hopefully start to make a lot more sense as to why we use certain medications in certain circumstances. All right, so without any further ado, here we go. All right, so we know that the pacemaker of the heart, right, the SA node, the SA node has the highest level of automaticity in any than any other area in the heart. There are other groups of cells that have a large, you know, automaticity focus or an automaticity foci, um, but the SA node kind of beats them out as long as it continues to be healthy. And so when you're looking at when you're looking at the SA node and the SA node is getting ready to fire it is sitting down at a pretty low millivoltage. It's sitting down, you know, about negative 90 millivolts or so, maybe negative 80 millivolts. And when it reaches a certain trigger point, which is generally between negative 80 and negative 90, we end up having sodium rush into those SA nodal cells. So you have a lot of sodium sitting on the outsides of those cells in the extracellular space. You have a lot of potassium on the inside of the cell, but you also have a lot of calcium on the outside of the cell as well. And so because there's a lot of sodium and calcium on the extracellular space um, and only potassium really sitting in the space, what happens is it gives you this kind of relative negative millivolts inside of the cell when compared to the extracellular space. And that negative millivoltage is what triggers the heart to open its sodium and potassium pumps. And so when the heart reaches, when the SA node reaches that negative 90 millivolts, it immediately opens those sodium channels and sodium influxes into the cell. And that brings the millivoltage super high. So you're going from like negative 90 millivolts all the way up to, you know, maybe with respect to the SA node, maybe negative, you know, negative 20 millivolts. But what that does is it triggers an electrical firing of the cell next to it and the cell next to it and the cell next to it until it eventually gets to the AV node and the AV node then depolarizes. And then the 
his Purkinje system depolarizes and those ventricular cells depolarize and we have a heartbeat. So back to the essay note, as soon as you see that, what we would call phase zero of the depolarization for the SA node, obviously you go from a negative millivolt almost up to a positive millivolt. And so when you're looking at an EKG, you can see a change in the isoelectric line. You can see a change in the baseline, and that's where we see our P wave. Now it takes a certain amount of time for not only the SA node to deliver the electricity to the AV node, but the AV node, while receiving it, also takes a small amount of time to transmit the signal because the AV node is like a circle, right? You can actually think of the AV node like a tire. And on one side of the tire, you have really worn out treads. But on the other side of the tire, you've got like snow treads and studs on them. And so um, your AV node is actually has two tracks in it. You have your fast pathway on the right, and then you have your slow pathway on the left. And so the AV node after receiving that signal, is able to transmit the signal through the fast pathway, but it does take some time. And so that's why you see on an EKG that PR interval, right? That that return to the isoelectric line on your QRS, or excuse me, on your um, EKG between the P wave and the QRS complex. As soon as the electricity, as soon as that sodium or comes into the AV node and starts to trigger depolarization of the AV node, that's when you see your typical depolarization curve, which is the four phases of depolarization, right? So starting off at the baseline at like negative 90 millivolts, you end up having this huge influx of sodium coming into the cell, and that happens almost instantaneously. If you are imagining, you know, the the curve itself, um, it is not sloped, so it's not like a roller coaster, you know, where you're kind of ticking up um, from the bottom. You're not really ticking up. It's really like climbing a ladder that is, you know, that is like a fire escape ladder. So it's, you know, it's not leaning at all. It's almost completely vertical. And you climb those cells from negative 90 millivolts all the way up to like plus 30 millivolts. So you have like 120 millivolt change in the electricity um, or in the voltage um, in that heart, which is why the QRS complex is massive. It's huge. It's way bigger than the P wave because the P wave is only changing millivolts by, you know, maybe 30 to 40 or so um, from negative 90, maybe to negative 50 millivolts. So when sodium comes into the cell, we know that potassium has to immediately start coming out of the cell. And so that curve, the, the action potential curve, while you have this vertical spike during phase zero of depolarization, the heart is immediately trying to repolarize and go back to that negative 90 millivolts. And so as potassium starts to rush out of the cell, um, you have this transient efflux of potassium out of the cell. Um, phase one of depolarization um, looks like the curve is really immediately trying to go back down to zero. So for the first, you know, for the first two to three milliseconds of that curve, it almost looks like it's going to look like an EKG, or it looks like it's going to look like a QRS complex type of thing. But that would be super crappy for a heart, right? So if you have this QRS complex, which is the firing of the uh, of the ventricles, 
If you allowed potassium just to flush out of the cell and return the heart back to back to a um, a depolarating or a depolarizing that is not a freaking word. If you returned the heart back to a state where it could depolarize immediately again, then you would have the T wave basically sitting on your R wave on your EKG. And we know that that's not the case on an EKG. On an EKG, you have your QRS complex, and then you have that ST segment. Um, where you have returned back to the isoelectric line until you finally see the T wave. So something else has to be happening in that heart other than sodium coming in and potassium coming out. And that is where we have phase two of depolarization. And so in order to prevent the return to a super negative millivolt very quickly, you have phase two of depolarization, which is where calcium starts to come into the cell. And you get this plateauing of the action potential curve. And the plateauing of the action potential curve is what we see as the ST segment on an EKG. If we have an appropriate amount of calcium coming into the cells, you should have a return to the isoelectric line for a period of time, you know, be it you know, 120 milliseconds or so, um, 0.12 seconds, so three little boxes on your EKG, you should see that the ST segment goes back down to zero because what's happening is that the, the potassium that is coming out of the cell is trying to drive the millivolts down. But potassium, or excuse me, but calcium is coming into the cell. And so during the plateau phase, during phase two of depolarization, the amount of um, calcium that's coming in is matching the amount of potassium that's coming out. And so the millivolts actually remains right at about zero millivolts for approximately, you know, we'll say 120 milliseconds or so. Now, eventually the heart does have to repolarize and allow the, um, uh, allow the cells upstream from it to be able to, um, depolarize again. And so eventually, after about 120 milliseconds or so, um, the calcium channels close and the potassium channels are still open. So potassium is still leaving the cell. Um, and so you enter into phase three of depolarization, which is a rather steep downhill climb or downhill fall rather back down to negative 90 millivolts. And you now reach that um, period of time when the heart can, or when that particular cell rather can receive another signal. During phase four of depolarization, um, which is the plateau, which is the, 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 portion of the action potential curve where you are between heartbeats, so you are between a T wave and the next P wave, your sodium and potassium is fixing itself again. So sodium is now exchanging with potassium and getting ready to receive another signal upstream, and it will enter back into phase zero of depolarization, which is sodium coming in, followed by potassium coming out, in order to prolong the action potential curve, as soon as potassium starts coming out, calcium comes in. Eventually the calcium channels close while potassium is still leaving the cell, and so the heart returns back to its negative 90 millivolts. So if you think of that in terms of the EKG, that makes total sense. So when you see a P wave on an EKG, that is the SA node allowing tons of sodium to come into those SA nodal cells. And that brings the millivolts from negative 90 up to like negative 50. And so you see a little spike in the EKG, you see that little P wave. 
as the signal travels down to the AV node and before the AV node fires, you have that PR interval, which is a flattening of your EKG or a return to the isoelectric line. And then as soon as the fast tract of the AV node sends the signal down through the, um, the bundle of Hiss, you get that large spike in your EKG. You get the QRS complex because as all of those, um, the bundle cells and the Purkinje cells um, fire, they bring a ton of sodium into those cells and bring the, the millivolts from negative 90 all the way up to like plus 30. So the QRS complex itself is reflective of sodium coming in and initially potassium coming out and not competing with anything. And then when you have that ST segment, which is another return to the isoelectric line, that is when calcium is coming in. And then as the calcium channels close and you start to see that steep repolarization back down to negative 90, that's when you see your T wave because the T wave is reflective of a sudden decrease in the millivolts back down to zero or back down to negative 90. And then phase four of depolarization, the sodium and potassium channels are correcting their gradients and getting ready for the next depolarization. So some things can start to become pretty apparent to us. Like if a patient has hyperkalemia, you are going to see phase three of depolarization happen pretty rapidly because you have hyperkalemia. And so phase three of depolarization is that rapid return back to negative 90. It's basically the T wave is phase three of depolarization. And in phase three, you have potassium that is leaving the cell and it is not being competed with um, with calcium anymore because the calcium channels have closed. So if you have hyper-K, that phase three of depolarization is going to happen very quickly and very aggressively back down to negative 90 millivolts, which is why you see those peaked T waves in hyperkalemia. With something like hypocalcemia, which is a very dangerous condition, hypocalcemia is going to interrupt phase two of depolarization, right? And so Phase one, you have potassium starting to leave the cell and it's trying to return that, that action potential curve back down to negative 90, but you have a plateauing of the electricity as calcium comes into the cell. And that's where you see that ST segment on the EKG. But if you have hypocalcemia, phase two is greatly shortened because you don't have a lot of available calcium. And so your ST segment is going to be very short. And that could be incredibly dangerous for our patients as the T wave starts to get closer and closer to the QRS complex. You could even start to have something like torsades or an R that R on T phenomenon. And something like profound hyponatremia, when you do not have a ton of available sodium, sodium is not able to influx into those cells as quickly. And so instead of phase zero of depolarization looking like a fire escape ladder being basically kind of vertical against the building, um, phase zero starts to be sloped a little bit. And so you have a widening of your QRS as it takes a longer period of time for sodium to come into those cells if you have profound hyponatremia. And so just understanding really what's going on during that action potential curve can help you to discern some of the EKG findings that you would have with things like hypocalcemia or hyperkalemia or hyponatremia. But in terms of how these things all interact with 
tachyarrhythmias and why we use certain medications of antiarrhythmics for certain conditions, um, it would help, I guess, to go through the classes that we have of antiarrhythmics. So the first class, class one of antiarrhythmics, are your sodium channel blockers. And there's three classes of sodium channel or channel blockers. That's, you know, class 1A, 1B, and 1C. And really in today's world, I think that it would be pretty safe to say that we generally, if we're going to use sodium channel blockers at all, which is very uncommon to use those anyway, um, the only ones we would probably use would be class 1A. Um, sodium channel blockers, which that was would be where things like procanamide fall in. Class 1B sodium channel blockers, you have lidocaine in there, but lidocaine isn't really used a ton for antiarrhythmics anymore. So looking at sodium channel blockers, what do they do? So we can see that in the action potential curve, phase zero is where sodium comes in, right? That's the only place where really we have sodium effective or effective in, um, in that action potential curve, which is that phase zero. So it's the sudden depolarization from negative 90 up to like positive 30 millivolts. So what class 1A sodium channel blockers like procanamide do is that they almost mimic a um, a hyponatremic state in that they let that vertical climb, that vertical ladder, start to kind of lean against a building. And so instead of phase zero looking almost completely vertical, it starts to make phase zero look like it's leaning a little bit. So it takes a longer period of time for sodium to depolarize that cell. It takes a longer period of time to go from that negative 90 to that negative 30. And so instead of being instantaneous, it may start to take several milliseconds in order to accomplish that goal. But it doesn't affect any other thing happening inside of the heart. It doesn't, it doesn't mess with the potassium channels. It doesn't mess with the um, calcium coming into the cell. And so what it does is because phase zero takes a longer period of time, the entire refractory period, the entire um, action potential curve gets a little bit longer as well. So um, it just shifts everything a little bit to the right. And so thereby taking a little bit longer period of time to remain in that absolute refractory period where those cells cannot receive another signal. The use of percanamide is um, important in the respect that it does not affect specifically just nodes, but it affects all ventricular cells as well. And so in the case of somebody with a with an accessory pathway, like somebody who has WPW, procanamide is also going to slow conduction through the accessory pathway, which is pretty important because a lot of other nodal blocking agents and potassium channel blocking agents do not as effectively control conduction through those accessory pathways. That becomes very important if you have a tachycardia originating from the ventricles in the case of like a fib or a flutter where you are interacting with an accessory pathway as well. And procanamide will be a big star of the show here in just a little while. But until then, we'll move on to class two medications. So class one antiarrhythmics, sodium channel blockers, and really we're just using class 1A, generally speaking, and that would be procanamide. 
there is a use for class 1b um, which is lidocaine but lidocaine's usage and understanding is a little less than procanamide because lidocaine does not in and of itself prolong phase zero of depolarization um, but it works by other mechanisms however while it can be effective um, in certain circumstances oftentimes there's another medication that would be used in its place and so i'm not going to talk about lidocaine today all right so what are class 2 antiarrhythmics well class 2 antiarrhythmics are beta blockers and so you may be thinking to yourself all right so beta blockers that doesn't really fit into my depolarization curve because there's no beta inside of there but really what does a beta receptor do in the heart so in the heart you have these receptors these beta 1 receptors and they can be stimulated by both epinephrine and norepinephrine um, either exogenously or um, uh, endogenously from the adrenal glands so there's a mechanism and wouldn't expect necessarily anybody to remember this mechanism but when epinephrine or norepinephrine stimulates a beta-1 cell or a beta-1 receptor rather attached to these beta receptors you have these G proteins and they're they're heterogeneous G proteins and so they have these three G proteins that are all attached to each other and they're all different and they can actually do different things for that heart but when you stimulate the beta-1 receptor those G proteins or, or one of the G proteins rather um, ends up activating something called adenylyl cyclase and what adenylyl cyclase does is it activates a protein and this protein allows calcium to come into the cell after some phosphorylation and so this protein which is called protein kinase a ends up allowing calcium to come intracellularly and so in that respect we actually can see that beta innervation or beta stimulation um, as well as beta blocking is really in a more roundabout way is going to be affecting the intracellular calcium within the cell when you stimulate those those beta um, receptors and you end up phosphorylating that protein kinase a and allowing calcium to come into the cell it not only allows calcium to influx into the cell uh, making it more available um, uh, and making contraction stronger, right? But it also releases um, calcium from the sarcoplasm uh, at the same time, thereby further increasing that intracellular calcium, making, making contractility, as well as making the speed of the signal even faster, um, thereby increasing what's called the dromotropy of that cell. The two medications that we use to block this beta receptor are metoprolol and esmolol generally speaking when we're talking about cardiac issues now when we're talking about non-cardiac medications like alpha and beta blockers like labetalol um, those do not have this cardiac effect they do not generally act on beta 1 receptors they act more on beta 2 um, uh, or alpha receptors Medications like labetalol do still act on beta-1 receptors, and so that's why we see that bradycardia from, um, from labetalol. But with metoprolol, all it does is act on the beta-1 receptors. And so what it does is it blocks that epinephrine or norepinephrine from stimulating that beta receptor. It stops that protein kinase A from, from allowing calcium to come into the cell. 
it prevents that calcium from coming intracellularly as quickly. And where we can really see the ramifications of that is in the SA node, as well as in the AV node. And so when a patient has an atrial tachycardia, um, like atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, what it does is it prolongs the amount of time that calcium is coming into that cell. And so it's going to prolong that absolute refractory period within the SA node and the AV node, thereby slowing down that atrial conduction. And it's going to help you greatly with supraventricular tachycardias like AFib and A-flutter, which is why beta blocking agents are typically going to be some of our first line medications that we would use when we see a AFib with a rapid ventricular response. Now, the nice thing about beta blockers is that it's not a nodal blocking agent. All it's doing is it is shifting the curve a little bit toward the right. And so it is it is preventing another signal from being able to fire very quickly. And so it is not only going to decrease the slope, if you will, of phase four of depolarization, but it is also going to prolong the repolarization in things like the SA node and the AV node in order to give the heart a longer amount of time to recover from the last beat. All right, so in class one, we have things like um, our class 1A, which would be the um, which would be procanamide, that's going to prolong that effective refractory period, and it's going to increase the whole duration of the action potential by turning that very vertical phase one or phase zero of depolarization um, to more of a sloped um, phase zero of depolarization. It's going to lengthen the entire curve. Class two, we have our beta blockers, and that is going to prolong the entire repolarization. So it's not prolonging necessarily the entire duration of depolarization, but what it's doing is it's prolonging the amount of time that it takes to repolarize because it is manipulating the calcium influx into the cell. Class three antiarrhythmics, this would be one that we're probably the most familiar with. Um, class three are going to be potas uh, potassium channel blockers, and that makes total sense, right? Because we've been talking about potassium like this whole time when we're talking about the action potential curve. And so with potassium, as soon as you allow sodium to enter into that cell, you get that big vertical spike, you immediately start trying to slope back down to zero. And so potassium is leaving the cell. In a potassium channel blocker, it prolongs the amount of time that potassium is going to be leaving the cell. And so your phase one and phase two end up becoming a lot longer. And so that plateau phase becomes a lot longer with potassium channel blockers. So your entire action potential curve gets wider and gets longer, meaning that your refractory period gets longer and wider. And remember, when you're talking about phase one and phase two of depolarization, what is that on an EKG? Well, that's your ST segment. That's the returning to the isoelectric line between the QRS and the T wave. And so when you give potassium channel blockers like amiodarone, um, that can cause a prolonged QT interval um, in a patient. And so you could see a, a prolonged QT interval enough to make a patient go into something like torsades. It's not common, um, but it can happen. I've never seen it happen, but in the textbooks, it certainly can happen. The issue that I do have with class three antiarrhythmics, uh, and, and particularly amiodarone, is that amiodarone is a primary class three antiarrhythmic, a primary potassium channel blocker. So it's going to prolong phase one and phase two of depolarization, or rather of repolarization. 
But the problem with amiodarone is that it actually has some sodium or some sodium channel blocking effects. It also has some beta blocking effects, and it also has some calcium channel blocking effects. And when you have some calcium channel blocking effects, and you have sodium channel blocking effects, and potassium channel blocking effects, what you are really doing is you have nodal blocking effects. And so without necessarily having um, any effect on ventricular conduction, i.e. conduction through an accessory pathway. And so with amiodarone, you may prolong the effective refractory period, but unfortunately, you, in the circumstance of having a patient who has AFib with an accessory pathway, like AFib with WPW, amiodarone can actually be very dangerous for those patients. And so when you look at the AHA guideline, and it says if you have a narrow complex tachycardia um, and you're not sure if it's regular or not to go ahead and use amiodarone, the issue with that is that if you run into a patient who has AFib with WPW, you can put these patients into VTAC, giving them something like amiodarone. And so giving them a medication that is not a, not a nodal blocking medication, i.e., procanamide would be the more appropriate use or the more appropriate medication in a circumstance like that. But the AHA does not want to add another box into their algorithm. And so we run into this circumstance where if you follow those guidelines to a T, you have the potential to kill a certain amount of your patients, especially if the patient has AFib with WPW or some other type of accessory pathway. So while amiodarone is great and it prolongs the effective refractory period because of its potassium channel blocking effects, and so it's wonderful with things that are really just going through the AV node, so you have some sort of reentrant um, uh, nodal tachycardia, an AVNRT, um, or you have AFib, RVR, um, and no accessory pathway, uh, those can be... Um, easily taken care of with amiodarone. But as soon as you start to throw a, an accessory pathway into the mix, it can become very dangerous for those patients. So being able to identify those guys is going to be pretty important. And we'll be able to do that very easily in the next part. And then finally, we have class four antiarrhythmics, which is our calcium channel blockers. Our calcium channel blockers are, I mean, that should be very obvious what it, what it does. So um, you have you have two classes though of calcium channel blockers. Basically, you can think of them as like non-cardiac and cardiac. Um, so the two classes they're all they're all hydropyridines. But um, you have you have dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, then you have non-dihydropyridine um, calcium channel blockers. And so the dihydropyridines um, those are calcium channel blockers that have non-cardiac effects. And so those are the calcium channel blockers. They all end with depine, um, and so those are they're pretty easy to identify. And these are the calcium channel blockers that we would use for blood pressure control, right? So they're going to Act on the myosin in your in your smooth muscle, um, and it is going to reduce your um, systemic vascular resistance and reduce your blood pressure as it relaxes some of the smooth muscle in those in your vasculature. So those are things like nicardipine and nifedipine and amlodipine, but re recognize that they all end with depine. And we are not talking about 
dihydropyridines in this lecture. We are talking about the non-dihydropyridines, which are things like cartazem and diltiazem. And those are going to greatly prolong the um, that phase two. They're going to um, not only act on those ventricular cells, but they're also acting on the nodes as well. And so we see a prolonged repolarization at the AV node because it takes a longer period of time for calcium to influx into that cell. And you also see the um, the entire slope rise a little bit, so it makes it a little harder to get back down to that negative 90 millivolt, which would be where you are going to repolarize again. And so you're gonna you are still going to have a decreased systemic vascular resistance with um with things like cartazem and diltiazem, which are those non-dihydropyridines. Um, but you're also going to have a decreased heart rate because of that prolongation of phase two of depolarization. Calcium channel blockers are great because they prolong the repolarization at the AV node primarily. And so if you have atrial tachycardias like AFib and atrial flutter with rapid ventricular response, um, it's going to slow the heart's ability to transmit down the fast tract of the AV node. And so you're going to have a slowing of the ventricular response, um, despite the fact that you're still going to be tacking along in your atria, which is why calcium channel blockers are generally going to be your primary medication that you'd be giving to somebody with a fib and a flutter with a prolonged or excuse me with a rapid ventricular response is those class fours i.e those calcium channel blockers all right so just a super quick overview before we um, break for part two here so you have class ones those are your sodium channel blockers we're primarily going to use class 1a which is percanamide Percanamide prolongs that phase zero of depolarization. So instead of being a vertical curve, it becomes more sloped. What that does is it prolongs the entire duration of your action potential and makes it to where you cannot depolarize as quickly as you otherwise would be able to. Those are great medications, um, especially because they do not act on nodes um, uh, in particular. And so if you have an accessory pathway, class 1A antiarrhythmics can be very beneficial. Class 2 antiarrhythmics, which are your beta blockers, those are really um, controlling the influx of calcium into the cell. And anytime you hear calcium, not only should you think of the action potential curve, but anytime you hear calcium, you should think of the AV node. And so really what beta blockers are doing well is they are prolonging the amount of the length of time that the fast and slow tracks in the AV node take to repolarize. And so it is prolonging repolarization of the AV node. And so if you have an atrial tachycardia like AFib or flutter that has a rapid ventricular response, beta blockers are an option for you. Class 3 antiarrhythmics are your potassium channel blockers, and that's like amiodarone. Um, and you are going to be prolonging the repolarization of that action potential because you are making that plateau phase, that phase 1 and phase 2, um, which is potassium leaving the cell. It is prolonging the amount of time that it takes potassium to repolarize the um, those ventricular cells. It takes a longer amount of time for potassium to leave the cell, and so your entire action potential duration is longer. And then you have calcium channel blockers, which are class four, um, and that allows um, a longer period of time as well for repolarization of the AV node. So class two and class four have much the same, uh, or, or rather a very similar mechanism. Um, calcium channel blockers are more direct, and so they're actually going to um, rise the um, uh, uh, 
they're going to allow the rise of depolarization to happen um, more slowly, uh, which kind of prolongs the depolarization as well as prolonging the repolarization. So class fours, in my mind anyway, would seem to be a little bit more effective um, on those atrial tachycardias. But class two, the beta blockers do much the same thing in that they prolong the repolarization at the AV node. The very last medication before we break to um, part two, which is adenosine, Adenosine is a very a very easy medication, and it doesn't have any real effect necessarily on um, on the action potential. But what it does is it just stops conduction through the AV node. It makes the AV node incapable of depolarization for a small period of time, you know, about 10 seconds or so. By the time it actually reaches your heart, most of it has metabolized, and so we generally only gonna or we're only gonna see the effects of adenosine. Um, for several seconds, you know, two to three seconds of, of a systole. And you may have a P wave asystole at the time because it, it does not affect the SA node. But remember that that's all that adenosine does. It slows conduction or stops conduction for a period of time through the AV node. And so if you have circus motion, like a AV reentrant tachycardia or an AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, which we'll talk about in part two, um, adenosine is going to be perfect for you. If you have a ventricular tachycardia, AV or adenosine is not going to do anything for you. It's not going to be necessarily harmful, but it's not going to do anything. If you have AFib with a rapid ventricular response just going through the AV node, then that is going to slow that down, but it's not going to prolong any repolarization. And so after adenosine is out of the AV node within a matter of seconds, that thing is going to start tacking along very quickly again. And so it's not going to harm your patient, and oftentimes it can be diagnostic, um, but it's not going to help them either. If you have atrial flutter with like a two-to-one response that is circuiting, or which creates basically a circus motion between the AV node and some other um, automaticity foci in the in the atria, um, you're going to break that circuit for a period of time. But as soon as the adenosine is out of there, the heart's going to start tacking along again. So not harmful, but not helpful. So you can see right then and there that despite the fact that when you were going through school, you were taught, hey, if you give adenosine to somebody with AFib, you'll kill them. That's just not true. If you give adenosine to somebody who has AFib or flutter, and all of those beats are conducting down to the AV node, you're going you're gonna to block that AV node for a, for a few seconds for a period of time, but you are not going to hurt the person. So I'll leave you with that food for thought, and I will see you guys soon for part two.